Welcome to the SJ Child Show, where a little bit of knowledge can turn fear into understanding. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome to the SJ Child Show. Today, I am speaking with Betsy Hill, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation because as a lot of you know that I really, um, number one, I'm so passionate about children and children's education and how we can better foster and nurture relationships, connections, communication, and really teach our kids how to be resilient moving into the future so that we can create a better kinder, more inclusive environment for everyone. And today we have a really great guest and we're going to have a fantastic conversation. So thank you so much for being here today, Betsy. Oh, it's my pleasure. Great to be here. So good to meet you. And I'm really interested to, you know, find out more about you. So give us an introduction about kind of who you are and where it started. Okay. Well, the probably most important thing about me is that I raised three boys, all of whom were very different and all of whom had some challenges uh, in different ways, but they were just, they are amazing uh, human beings. Uh, I started off as a school teacher back, you know, when dinosaurs still roamed the earth. (laughs) And, um, but I defected as many teachers do, you know, the education system is and what we know about uh, teaching, I mean, I taught foreign language, and there were some of my students that just, like your son, who's a you know a real language learner, was really easy for for them. And for others, they just struggled and struggled and just couldn't do it. And I didn't have things in my repertoire in my toolkit that really that I knew how to help them. If I knew half of what I know today back then, it would have been a very different experience, but I stayed connected. I've always been interested in um, the brain and how it works. I was interested in brain and how we manage language. And and uh, 15 years or so ago, um, I had the great good fortune uh, to um, meet Pat Wolf and Dr. Patricia Wolf, who is one of the pioneers in applying neuroscience and education. And um, she wrote a book called Brain Matters, which is my number one recommendation for any teacher who wants to understand how the brain learns. It's a fabulous book. And um, so I've done a lot of work with her and a a group that has been trained by her called the Brainy Bunch. (laughs) I love that. And it's been been an incredible experience. And um, through that and a number of other experiences, I just have been fascinated and um, in learning about how the brain and, and now being able to share that with others, like being able to do this on your show today, which I'm delighted to do. It's so amazing when we can help, especially teachers. I think it's so important. Um, and I mean, of course, every teacher you know, comes from a different background and is taking their own perspective with them. Um, and it's so um, 
there's, they have, there's so much compassion that has to go into wanting to be a teacher, being a teacher. And I think that, you know, being able to help or support them um, in, in understanding some of the different learning types that thank goodness at the place we're at in this era of our, our time right now, we're, we're understanding, we're learning, we're being more cognizant of people's differences, of their different learning styles and how we can accommodate them through better support systems and resources. And it really takes a dedicated teacher to stand up, to want to understand, number one, and then put that into action and really develop, you know, a good neuroaffirming learning environment for their students. Yeah, I love that expression. I hadn't heard neuroaffirming, but I really think that's a very apt um, expression. And what I find is most teachers are really interested. They just have not been exposed to it. Most teacher training programs still today never mention the word brain. Mm -hmm. It's as if learning happens in in your little toe or your (laughs) left elbow or something, because we don't really understand that. And so when I, one of the ways that I start a lot of my training sessions is to ask people, how would you define learning? Mm. And I typically get an answer that's something like, well, it's acquiring new knowledge and skills. It's being able to apply that knowledge. It's being able to do something you couldn't do before. And all of that is true. Um, But at its very fundamental level, learning is a biological process. Oh, so, it, can I answer? <laughs> right? I would ask right. me. Yeah, that's exactly what I would say. It's a process. It's a, and it's about the making and strengthening of connections among neurons in neural networks in our brains. So we have 85 billion neurons in our brains, give or take, from the time we're born. And we we get a few more and we lose a few, but pretty much we have that bunch of neurons. And so what it happens as we grow, it's not more neurons in our brains, it's those connections. And we end up with trillions and trillions and trillions of connections, which are the basis, all those neurons communicating together are the basis of all human behavior. And so when we start to understand that, when we start to understand, then we have to ask questions like, what? so what do we do to help students' brains make new connections because we're not transmitting knowledge. We're helping brains build themselves. Mm. And when we do that, then we have to ask different questions. It's not about, do I know my stuff and can I tell you about it? It's how do I create a learning experience for you Mm. that will allow your brain to build the right connections that have meaning and that make sense then that you can then go forward and use and retrieve. Yeah. And now we can put some, you know, practical application to those things and say one student might learn better through uh, watching a video. One student might learn better through hands-on experience, through uh, visual experience, like writing down and seeing it, you know, and, or being spoken to. So it's, it's so important that we realize that not everyone is going to learn from one learning experience or one teaching process that we have to really individualize 
And I don't even know how that's possible. I've never been, I've been a preschool teacher and I know how to wrangle kittens around, you know, (laughs) I've never had to deal with special talent, right? (laughs) It's a special talent. Yeah. Never. So what the, the, the wonderful thing, and this really didn't uh, exist. Certainly um, it's, it's really within the last probably 10 years is the ability in a very affordable and very, and pretty quick way to actually um, understand how individual students learn. And so there's this, we, when we refer to these, pro, you mentioned the word process. So there are a whole bunch of processes that are happening in our brains through these neural pathways and connections. And those processes are also referred to as cognitive skills. So you may have heard that term. Cognitive skills include various types of attention. So there actually is more than one type of attention. There's sustained attention. There's selective attention. When we're able to screen things out, there's divided attention, how quickly you go back and forth, uh, you know, keeping a couple of things uh, active in your mind. And then we have other skills like various types of memory skills, very short-term memory, longer-term memory visual processing, auditory processing, all of these are really the the how of learning. So in school, a lot of time it's about the what of learning. You know, what do I need to learn to read? I need to learn to do multiplication, division, subtraction, and addition. I need to know about the civil, I need, it's the what that gets so much focus rather than the how. And today we can actually Give a a one-hour cognitive assessment that's online. It's very easy to do and learn a tremendous amount about how an individual child learns. So you were talking about um, a child who maybe learns from seeing versus learns from reading and hearing. So that's a very classic. um, uh, The assessment that we use um, will um, define and characterize how uh, both verbal memory and visual memory. And it's these are more long-term types of memory, but it's is it easier for your brain to remember information that you see? So a chart, a graph, a diagram, a picture, an image, whatever. Or is it easier for you to remember something that's language-based, what you see and hear? So I'm my strong, my strength is my verbal memory versus my visual memory. So if I need to remember I needed to remember what your set looked like, I would have to put it into words. And I would say there's a little um, uh, framed picture up at the top right, although it may be left the way that Zoom switches things around. This says just be awesome. Now that I've said that, if somebody asked me tomorrow what was in Sarah's uh, uh, set, I I would be able to remember that, but I wouldn't be probably otherwise. So now think about um, an assignment that we would typically get in school um, to learn new vocabulary words. And very often a teacher will say, write the word, write the definition of the word, write the word in a sentence. Did you ever have an assignment like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Most of us did. Now think about those two kids, one who's got great verbal memory that's a wonderful assignment for me. Yeah, now me think too. about the, now think about the child who remembers everything that they see, but really struggles to remember verbal information. Mm-hmm. 
that's going to be a torturous assignment for them. Yeah. They're going to spend a lot of time. They're going to struggle. What's going to be difficult in the end of the day, it's not going to stick. And so that's just, it's a very simple example, but I think a really powerful one that says when we can, and it's not about preferences, you know, we all learn verbally and visually. It's not like I don't take in visual information or remember it, Yeah. but it's my strength. And when we help kids understand their learning strengths, I tell them, I call them learning superpowers when I'm talking to kids about their cognitive profiles, then we can help them use those. We can help them uh, make learning much more easy, much more effective, uh, and they get to do more, spend more time doing stuff they really like to do. Oh, I absolutely agree. We have a child with dyslexia, and math is really hard. Reading obviously is difficult, but math is was uh, unexpectedly more difficult than than we thought. And one thing that they really did like to do was play Minecraft <laughs> and we engaged with them to build multiplication tables or blocks within Minecraft, figure out, like add the blocks, count the blocks, multiply the blocks, you know, do your own in your own world while you're having fun, while you're taking in all that information. And I, I think it was just so, so great to be able to, like you said, build up the strengths um, with the challenges, build the challenges with the strengths rather. Um, it It's so empowering for kids when they have that aha moment that they, okay, I can do this and not feeling so deflated or like a failure or defeated from not being able to learn like their peers. Yes. And um, a lot of school tends to focus on what kids can't do. So what did you get wrong on the test? We got to fill that in. What's, you know, what don't you do well? We got to figure out how to, you know, help you work around that or whatever. And we, what we now are knowing and what neuroscience is really going to, the way it's really going to impact education is by helping children understand how they learn, but also that these skills are not fixed. They're not, you don't just get, you know, a box full of blocks that that you come into the world with that are your cognitive skills, and that's all you ever have. Mm. Um, these skills can actually be strengthened, and we know that um, they can be developed through the right kind of cognitive training by building those skills so that they're there. And everything from attention to processing speed to working memory to other executive functions. Um, and um, and these are the reasons that many kids struggle. When, when kids struggle with reading and math, most of the time it is not an issue of instruction or curriculum. Um, sometimes it's we're using, uh, you know, some of the wrong tools that 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 they need to uh, as you know, building um, math facts into uh, Minecraft did for you guys. <laughs> but, but most of the time, it's because there is some underlying cognitive weakness and that if we can help them improve that. So one great example, um, I think, is um, working memory. And working memory is getting a lot of attention uh, these days. A lot of parents are actually familiar with the term that, and they've been told your child has issues with working memory. Um, and so what 
but a lot of parents don't know what that is either. It's not sort of common. And we, we all use the word attention, although we may not use it the way that the neuroscientists use it, but uh, but we have a, a pretty good intuitive idea of what attention is. And we can tell whether a kid's paying attention or not sometimes. Mm. Sometimes they're paying a lot more attention than we think they are. Yeah. Uh, but working memory is an, is one of those, it's called an executive function. Uh, and it's there, there are three, working memory, um, inhibitory control, how you stop yourself from doing something you otherwise would do, and cognitive flexibility, so how you are able to adapt to the world around you. And these are all very predictive of academic success, life success, all those kinds of things. And um, there are a lot of kids who struggle with one or more executive mm-hmm. functions, as you know. Yes. <laughs> so working memory, just to you know, use as an example, because part of what we're trying to do is help parents understand, you know, some of these terms and yeah. and um, relationships that they may not appreciate is how we hold information in our minds while we think about it. So if I, if when you, when uh, you tell your child, um, would you please go upstairs and get your soccer uniform and make sure you brush your teeth while you're up there and then uh, grab your spelling list because we'll practice it in the car on the way to soccer practice. Well, a lot of kids listen to those instructions and they may get the first one done. They may get upstairs and they may find part of their soccer uniform and then they may just look at you like, what did you say? (laughs) um, And it's not because they weren't trying to listen. It's not that they weren't paying attention. Is that their brains just don't hold on to all that information. Working memory has limited capacity for all of us, but even more so for some. And and that's when we, and then we misinterpret that. And we call kids lazy. We call them inattentive. We call them difficult. We call them not paying, you know, not listening. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of things. And, And most of the time, it's that their brains simply aren't holding on to that. Um, and then you would think about, okay, so that's an example we can appreciate as parents that it's a behavior. Um, and it's, but it also underlies um, some very important aspects of math and reading. So what, think about what's happening when you're reading. You're taking in pieces of information, you're holding them in your mind while you think about them, you're comparing them to what you already know, which is how we create meaning, it's how comprehension works. And that all happens in working memory. It's our only conscious processing. And so when kids get to that stage where they can decode and they can read out loud and they read something to you and then they you ask them a question, they have no idea what they read, that can very often be um, something that's related to, to working memory. And the exciting thing is that we can actually build these skills up. We can improve working memory and attention and inhibitory control and all those things to, to help kids be more successful. Yeah. And so important too, because uh, I can see the differences even in my own two children, just night and day with the um, DJs, we actually had his tested. He has a 99% working memory uh, in his processing speed in uh, equating and, you know, a certain limited number of things. Um, But then, like you said, that uh, impulsatory reactions and things, oh, 
I hope that someday we get, we get a handle on those types of things and practice, but those are something we have to practice all the time, you know, going to the store and um, he's 13. So scanning the groceries and putting them in the bag, that's something we're doing regularly now so that he can start building those skills because I need him to go grocery shopping someday for himself if he has to. And I want him to know how, uh, but you know, I kind of joked with you at the beginning, like he can, he studies all this languages, but he's, still semi-communicative with his ability to have a, a conversation and to really communicate with people. And that's hard for people to understand that he right. could have this right. extreme bit of knowledge yet. Oh, I'm looking at him and I'm trying to talk to him, but you know, he just repeated back to me or <laughs> I can give that good acquaintance, but, or he, you know, um, said something completely different that had nothing to do with it. And so, and I mean, obviously with him, there's a, there's a whole different like hmm, <laughs> bubble, but you know, with, with other children and the ability to be able to, um, feel like they are being seen and heard and valued in their class, it's so important that we take the time to, as parents, try to help the teacher understand who our children are. And I really want to put a lot of emphasis on parents because it really starts in the home and it starts with looking at your child and understanding very early on how they're taking in and learning information and things that they're struggling with. That's 